We're working through together in uh, this time our Bible Institute class is on the New Testament. We're doing a New Testament survey, which means we're going to work our way through the New Testament, um, not at the pace where we once were doing sort of a chapter at a time, but we'll move through it in a, uh, it'll take a chunk of time though, because the New Testament's quite a bit to go through. I think we've been three or four or five weeks now just in Matthew, but unless I get way off track, we should finish up Matthew today and at least lay the foundation for the Gospel of Mark that we'll pick up. Um, all of these things are online. Don't forget our Bible Institute's online as well, and anybody can go to our Bible Institute. It's free, and you can earn at your own pace. You can take, there's 110 or 11 courses on there now. You can take any of them um, for free at your own pace, and uh, if you complete 20, you can earn an associate's degree. If you complete 40, you can earn a bachelor's degree in ministry. As of this morning, we had 661 students. So that's uh, always fascinates me to see everybody and watch them come online and do work and go on the forums. Very cool stuff. So that's all there for you. It's all free. And uh, this we're doing a, a little slower version of that. That's all. At this pace, to get a degree would take 50 years. <laughs> well, I'm sort of doing a half a course a week, a half a lesson. So, yeah. I do a course. So I exaggerated. We probably will finish a course a year at this pace. 20 years. You could get an associate's 40 years for a bachelor's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but... Uh, but you could go a little faster if you wanted to, doing work on, on your own. So there you go. A lot of these courses are on audio, and you, if you're some, you've had to drive to work or any of those things, you could listen there and back, and you could knock a lot of stuff out that way. Um, I listen to a lot of these courses when I would work out and stuff, go to the gym, pop them in, get the lectures out of the way. Good stuff. Okay, so I see I have sidetracked three minutes already. That's why we're still in Matthew. We are going to um, pick up the action in Matthew 22, at the end of Matthew 22. We were in the beginning uh, earlier. Oh, and I wanted to thank, I wasn't here last Wednesday. I'm on the bunny trail again. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for letting me uh, go. Pastor Fran taught. Um, we were actually invited to teach at a conference up in Tampa, and uh, I, I got to speak up there for a couple of nights, and that was one of the churches who really helped us after the storm. Uh, they kept coming back, and so we wanted to go up and bless them, and Doug and Kim came and led worship, and it was fun. But it's, uh, there's no place like home. Matthew 22, let's look at verses 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And he said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So uh, the Pharisees, we'll talk more about them in a minute. You know, they spent a lot of time trying to trip Jesus up, but he could always sort of turn their things around on them, and they wouldn't know how to respond. And in this case, the, the question is, whose son is the Christ? And the question is really, how can Jesus be the son of David if David lived a thousand years before Jesus? And the answer is that the Christ, the Messiah, um, was the fulfillment of prophecy 
of the seed of David. Uh, and, and so Jesus was the promised Messiah, which meant he was the seed of David. Uh, in, in the beginning of Matthew, we looked at the genealogy there, uh, and, and that gave us a sort of a picture of his... Um, in his humanity, he was a direct descendant of Abraham and David through Joseph. Uh, and so uh, Joseph would be Jesus' legal father. Um, the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 gives Jesus lineage through Mary. And so um, uh, Jesus is the descendant of David by adoption through Joseph, but by blood through Mary. Primarily, though, this reference to the son of David is, uh, is meant to refer to his messianic title as the Old Testament uh, prophesied concerning him. So Jesus is the Messiah, and the Old Testament is filled with, with um, prophetic insight to that end. Um, the psalm that Jesus was referring to when he asked the Pharisees the question was Psalm 110, 1 through 7, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then it goes on from there. So uh, so he was addressing the Pharisees with this sort of question. They didn't know how to answer him. And uh, uh, Jesus was saying, in effect, that he was the Messiah. And they, they, they really struggled with this because he would, he would sort of get them in a corner with Scripture. Now, the Pharisees were um, a very interesting group. And I, I may have said this, but you, you need to know about the Pharisees. Jesus would call them hypocrites quite often, which is a word for actor back then. Um, the hypocrites were the actors. And uh, um, because he said they acted one way on the outside, but they were, they were completely different inwardly. And that their, the, um, their relationship with God wasn't producing fruit in them. The Pharisees had initially started in, with pretty good purpose. Um, a couple hundred years before Christ the Pharisees were formed in order to try and protect Judaism from being completely undone by the Greeks. So um, Judaism, they were concerned it was going to be Hellenized. That's when the Greeks were Hellenists, and, and they, they were having this huge Im- influence on culture everywhere, and they were everywhere. Um, and so they got together, and they, they decided they would protect um, the Torah, uh, and and yet, in the process in, of trying to protect it, it became all about rules. And they added all sorts of rules in the process of trying to protect it. Well, the more rules they added over time, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules, um, the further away they got from real relationship with God. To the point that when Jesus came, they weren't in relationship at all. They were just following rules on the outside. And, and so, starting with good intent, they had drifted way off in the process. Jesus calls him on it in Matthew 23, 5 through 7. He says, everything you do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men, uh, have men call them rabbi. So they had turned the whole thing into a show. And, and so Jesus was trying to undo it. The, the, uh, Phylacteries he's talking about were some called, they're also called tefillin. Um, there were these small, initially, pretty small square leather boxes that had portions of Scripture in them. And um, they, they would tie them uh, during the prayer services. Um, one was strapped on the left arm and one was strapped on the forehead. 
um, during the prayers. And um, the, the word phylactery, is a, it's a Greek word. It means safeguard or protect or amulet. And so this was a way initially they were, they were just, you know, trying to protect the Scripture. Well, what happened over time was in order to show up better, they kept making these things bigger and bigger, ridiculously bigger. So that it, it, it was, it was you know, almost foolish, but the bigger, you know, the bigger your, your forehead and the arm thing was, the more religious you appeared. And, and so they were being made solely to draw attention to the wearer. And, um, and so all of those things that are causing people to look at them instead of God are big problems. And um, that, that tendency, unfortunately, of being a Pharisee, just it's very easy for us to fall into that. We, and I've said this, but I, I, it's worth repeating. It's, it's, un, it's easier to follow a bunch of rules than it is to work on your relationship with God in the Spirit. Because a lot of times we, in, we just tell me what I'm supposed to do, and that's what I'll do. Where relationship, there's, a, there's a stuff involved. You know, the relationship with God requires you spending time with Him and listening and reading and praying. Now, you're supposed to do that out of a heart that's all in. But a lot of times we go, I'm too busy for all that. Just tell me what the rules are and I'll do those. And I think that's going to work. But it doesn't. It's not enough. There's, there's no life in that. And the more you get into that, the further away you drift from a real relationship, the kind of relationship that's life-giving and life-affirming in the process. So he's dealing with that. We had a lot of that going on when Jesus came. In uh, Matthew 24, you, you see something called the parousia. Um, it's a term you should know. It's one of those funny terms. It just basically means the second coming of Christ. Jesus has come. He's coming back again. We we've know that he's arrived. We're waiting for him to return. And we're, that's a big deal. That's where a lot of stuff happens when Jesus comes back. Uh, it's by his mercy right now that he's not back, but he's coming, and, and, he, and he could be coming at any time. Matthew twenty four twenty seven, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. When Jesus comes, everybody's going to know it, and, and uh, that's going to happen. And we're supposed to live in a way where we are sort of being faithful and watching and anticipating his return. Um, he tells a parable in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. It's the parable of the ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on the way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him uh, and went with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they uh, said, Open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So, um, the, the idea of this parable is that Christ will return at an unknown hour and that his people are supposed to be ready. Um, being ready means that we're, um, 
we're prepared for whatever's coming so that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus at all times while we anticipate and eagerly await his coming. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, they were sleeping when he returned. That's not the issue because that, that could be the thing. Um, so he might come at any time. We could be sleeping. We could be working. We could be, um, you know, pursuing leisure activities. But whatever it's we're doing, we need to do it in a way so that we don't have to make things right when he shows up. We just need to be ready. So that's why we live trying to do the next right thing. And, uh, and so um, the, the five virgins who had the extra oil represent those people that are living this thing out, pressing into the Lord, waiting on His return, filled with the Spirit, and trying to do the next right thing. The other five um, are, they represent basically false believers uh, who aren't connected in that way who aren't pursuing those things, they may be hanging out with believers hoping that that connection is enough, but it's not. You have to be connected in and of yourself to the Lord, and it's very important that you do that. And so we live ready. The other thing, uh, it says, you do not know the day or the hour. I've, uh, so I've been around 58 years now, and over the course of my journey, I have had uh, at least a half a dozen fairly well-known, publicized things that I've seen about people saying that Jesus was coming back. And they'll give it a date and a time. Have any of you ever seen that happen where people have said, he's coming back? And I've, I've known people that have gotten rid of their stuff. Uh, I, I, uh, we had a guy here, uh, not that, probably 10 years ago. I don't remember which, which one it was, but some guy had a radio show and he said, this is it. Get rid of your stuff. And uh, uh, and I was like, dude, it's not going to happen. He goes, no. And uh, he had this bicycle, he was going to, I don't remember, but we, we were talking about, he said, don't get rid of your bike. It was like, oh, yeah, oh, no, I don't need, you need your bicycle. But um, here's the deal. The Bible says no, nobody knows the day and the hour but the Father. It, it's not in there for us to dig out, ferret out, interpret, run through prophetically and figure out we can nail it down to the date. You cannot, because if it, if it could... You, you, everybody would be able to focus. It's not going to happen. Here's, here's what happens. Here's what we know. Uh, do you remember in the scripture when Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you? And uh, that's what he's gone to do. All right, now, he's referencing a tradition where when a man married a woman in this time in, in culture, um, everybody lived in sort of a, a family house and they would live together, and each, each subsequent generation would just add on to the house and build their own little wing around a central garden. And when uh, uh, a man and a woman were married, um, in effect, uh, he would go then, at that point in time, he would go and prepare a place for her. And so they were married or betrothed, but it wasn't consummated until he had gone and built a proper home. Well, the only one who could send him after his bride was the father. The father would go and inspect the house the, that the son had built and say whether it was ready or not because the son would go back. You know, most guys, hey, I'm married now, and go and, you know, throw up a, a, uh, a quick sleeping bag or something and go, okay, the place is ready, honey. We'll do it later. And the father wouldn't allow that. Nope, this is how it's going to be done. You're going to make it just right. And he would be the one who had the only, he was the only one who knew when, when he could go and send the son. He would look at some point and say, okay, go get your bride. And often the, the groom would come and uh, his, his bride was to be living ready, usually took a year, living ready for him to return at any moment. And then when he would come, they, they, usually they would blow the shofar 
uh, to sort of announce that he was coming because often he would come at night as part of the tradition and surprise. And then the bride would have to be ready and grab the ladies in waiting and off they would go and there would be this big banquet and the marriage would take place and, and they would be then put together. Well, so only the father knows. Jesus even said, I, I don't know. Only the father knows. So if you ever hear any of those things, not that you would, don't, don't buy it, okay? You'll know when Jesus comes back and you won't miss it and, and you won't know ahead of time. He's just coming. And, and you're to live like he could come any moment. And you're to live like it could be another thousand years. That's how you're supposed to live. Isn't that a great way to live? So why we wait? What do we do? We stay busy for the Lord doing what He's called us to do. Uh, and, and we wait for the process. Okay, so, um, so you have that going on. That was a pretty good bunny trail. Parable of the talents, Matthew 25. Let me read it. Verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more, but the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned, settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with these five. See, I've gained five more. Master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown and, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have had received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's kind of a rough story, isn't it? But uh, in this, there's, a, there's really a sort of universal application to all mankind. From the time of the creation of man, each individual has been entrusted with resources of time and material wealth. Uh, and, and see, here's the thing. Everything that we have comes from God and belongs to Him. And we're responsible for using those resources so that they increase in value. And additionally, as believers, we have perhaps the most incredible resource of all, the Word of God. And so we're to be taking this and applying this to our lives and, and being good stewards of it and being a blessing to others. And, and we're to do it in a way so that it multiplies in the world around us. And so, you know, we're accountable to the Lord um, for, for those things that we, we want to use everything he's given us wisely and under his direction. So, and, and so most of it, you know, so some, you see there, one guy got five, and one guy got two, one guy, everybody gets a, a different amounts, but it's just our heart that says, God, you know, I just want you to use me, and, and everything I have is yours, and, and Lord, just let me be good, and, and with a good steward in the process. And so uh, he talks to this there. Then um, we're heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew, 
uh, in Matthew 26. Um, uh, Gethsemane means oil press, by the way. Jesus spent a lot of time in the Olive Garden in that area uh, with his disciples. They were there all the time. Uh, so it wasn't just this one time that he went. It was somewhere they went frequently. But this particular time was uh, right towards the end of his journey. He takes Peter, James, and John with him because he takes them to see a lot of things. And uh, they get tired there and they fall asleep, even though he's asked them, would you pray for me? But they keep falling asleep. And uh, he calls Peter on it and, and says, pray that you don't fall in temptation. You know what Peter does later that night? Falls into temptation. Three times. Okay, so uh, so we have that going on. Then he's arrested. Matthew 27. Well, Pilate's got him. It's a great question. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked, and they all answered, crucify him. But see, Pilate, this is a picture. Everybody has to make a decision about what to do with Jesus. Everybody. Just the way it is. You're either going to follow or you're not. Those are your choices. So everybody has to come to that decision at some point. Uh, I wrote, did I write Flavius Josephus on your note page? Okay. Uh, so that's just a, I could bunny trail. Flavius Josephus was uh, a historian who wrote at the time of Christ and whose writings survived. We have copies of them. And uh, it's fascinating reading. If you ever want to go read something about that time and place from a, a historical point of view, that we have the writings of Flavius Josephus, and they talk about Jesus. Now, um, they, they've done this thing where it looks like maybe a believer got a hold of his writings and was adding some things in parentheses, but they've kept them in parentheses, and he could have been writing them. But uh, he writes about Jesus, Jesus' ministry in detail, um, uh, and what was happening on... Because a lot of people go, how can you know something happened 2,000 years ago? Well, we, besides the Bible, we have external resources, and one of them is Josephus and the writings of Josephus, who was writing at the time. And he talks about Jesus and what it says at that time appeared Jesus. Um, uh, he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who uh, received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. Uh, and when Pilate, I'm reading now from Josephus, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. Then he actually speaks about the resurrection, and uh, as he's writing, up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So it's just, uh, it's neat to sort of know some of the historical ideas and references that are happening in there. But that's not the scripture, just so you know. There's a difference. The Bible's the Bible. Okay. Gospel of Mark. Just going to set it up. We're not going to dig into it today. But um, the, the, uh, the Gospel of Mark actually doesn't contain the name of the author in the writing, but the church, historical church, universally agreed that Mark uh, was the author. And um, this would be Mark, who was John Mark um, in the Scripture. And uh, he was, uh, the Apostle Peter sort of called him his spiritual son. And he also um, spent a lot of time with Paul and Barnabas. So he knew a lot of the circle in the beginning. 
and from them he was he gained this information and lots of accounts and his own ministry and stuff where he um, he was able to write the gospel under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It was probably the first of the gospels written uh, sometime around A.D. 55. Uh, Matthew was written primarily to Jews. Mark is um, written uh, primarily to Roman believers, particularly Gentiles. And uh, it's written in a very interesting way. It doesn't have a genealogy because of who he's appealing to. So the Gentiles wouldn't really be as interested in the Jewish his- history as they would have been in Matthew. Uh, so he And he just starts talking about Jesus as Messiah. And um, he sort of writes account, account, account of things that he did in his ministry. Interestingly, and I'll start with this point, John Mark, because you don't always see this in Scripture. John Mark... Um, was with Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey, and he left abruptly. And then Paul and Barnabas are about to head out on their second missionary journey, and Barnabas wants to take Mark with them. And Paul says, no, he left us the last time. He's not coming back with me. And Paul and Barnabas argued to the point where they decided to separate and go their own ways in doing ministry. And so Barnabas took Mark and went, and Paul picks up Silas, and he goes. And God uses that whole thing, but it's a pretty big thing uh, to watch that kind of struggle happen. But later on in uh, Paul's life, he asked specifically for John Mark. He said, bring me John. I need John Mark here. So obviously there's a restoration that happens. I think it's good to see restoration take place after um, things happen and that it's possible in the scripture. So um, that will get us ready for the Gospel of Mark, and we will dig in to that next week. But that is enough for you to take in today. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. Um, join us when you can. God bless you. We'll see you soon.